We're continuing our study of 1 Corinthians. And today I've titled the message, Spiritual Edification. And the text is from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 to 26. And I said that 1 Corinthians chapters 12 to 14 have to do with a very special context of spiritual gifts and their proper usage in the body of Christ. And inserted right in between in this section is this chapter 13, this great, amazing chapter on the topic of love. In Greek, it's agape. It's a special type of love that God Himself demonstrated by sending His own Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us. It is a sacrificial type of love. It is a giving type of love. It is the others-oriented type of love. So what Paul is saying is, in our exercise of the gifts, we must be mindful that everything that we do in exercising of the gifts, the manifestations of the Holy Spirit, we must be grounded in love for the sake of others. It's not about me. Could you repeat after me? It's not about me. It's not about me. Gifts are not about me. It's about others. That's why God gifted us. As a matter of fact, anything that God has gifted us or endowed us with is for the sake of sharing. So think about it. If we have money, if we have talents, and we have wonderful backgrounds, aptitudes and abilities, and we hoard them, we, we, we refuse to share that with others, then we will be held accountable on that day of judgment. And so, same thing with these spiritual gifts. These are not for the sake of those who manifest in these gifts to take pride and, and show off. This is not for the performance sake. These are all to be utilized for the sake of the body. And that's why in chapter 12, verse 31, this is a final verse before talking about love in chapter 13. Paul has said, now eagerly desire the greater gifts. Paul is into gifts. He wants the body to be gifted, and the body is gifted. So he wants to affirm these gifts. And we'll understand what the greater gifts are in just a moment. But then he says, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. And we know that this excellent way is that way of love that he talks about in chapter 13. And then after finishing chapter 13, in chapter 14, verse 1, he says, Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. Now we know what Paul is talking about. Eagerly desire greater gifts, and one of those greater gifts has to do with prophecy. And there are other greater gifts too. And what is Paul saying? Greater gifts than what? He's comparing these gifts and saying that there are gifts which are better or more superior for what reason? And this is what we're going to discover. And just to give you a summary, Paul is basically going to talk about the gift of prophecy in comparison to the gift of tongues. You see, the Corinthians took a lot of pride in tongues because it reminded them of these manifestations that they were familiar with in the pagan culture, where people would fall into ecstasy and they would blurt out these uh, esoteric words. 
words that they cannot understand because they are seized by demons and they saw that as high uh, reputable way of operation in, in terms of pagan spirituality. But when they entered into the kingdom, they received the Holy Spirit, they realized that some of these people were manifesting in tongues. That is given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So they took great pride in tongues. And what Paul wants to point out is, well, we have a problem with tongues. And he's going to point out what the problem and issue with tongues is. But he wants to point out, tongues are not the greater gifts. They are gifts for sure, but they are greater gifts. And the reason why he uses the term greater, comparatively speaking, is because it has something to do with the body of Christ. And so he says, follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. Now, let me give you a little bit of a preview before we enter into the text. I want to tell you a little bit about the gift of prophecy. I personally am what you would call a continuationist. That is, I believe that the gifts that manifested in the early church days, they have continued to manifest all throughout church history, and it's valid at any time in church history. I believe that all these offices of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers are valid for today. All these nine gifts of the Holy Spirit, other gifts are valid for today. And besides, I believe that there are many other gifts today, especially in 21st century. You can imagine, you know, with the technology enhanced society, there are many, many gifts even related to this kind of cultural context. Having said that, the basis for the gift of prophecy. What is the basis for the gift of prophecy? Well, I see it even in the Old Testament, in Numbers chapter 11, when the Holy Spirit fell on the 70 elders of Israel in the wilderness. And, and Moses witnessed this. And Moses had this comment to say. He said, when these elders... By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they started prophesying spontaneously. He took that as a sign. He said, I really wish that all God's people were prophets like me. He didn't want to monopolize this prophethood. He wanted everyone to be prophetic like him, to be able to speak forth the wonders and, and revelations of God to one another. And then all of us know the prophecy that is found in Joel chapter 2, which was recited by Paul on the day of Pentecost, that's recorded in Acts chapter 2, that in the final days, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit, and my Spirit will come upon all these people, and, and God promised, your sons and daughters will prophesy. And, and Peter added one more, your servants, male servants, female servants, they will all prophesy. In other words, you will prophesy on a whole scale basis, not only few who are specially gifted. It is something that is available to everyone. And I think that's why Paul is saying, eagerly desire these gifts. I mean, that would be injustice. That would be unfair if that was only available to the few and not available to rest. But if it is available to all of us, 
then Paul can technically say, eagerly desire that. Seek for it, because there's something good that comes out of it. Now, having said that, I want to differentiate between certain levers that's of a prophecy. The highest level is what we, is known as the office of prophet, and this is a leadership gift. Okay, so these are people who are specially gifted to exercise leadership. And this has to be acknowledged by the church. You can't just go around and say, I'm a prophet, I'm a prophet, I'm going to act like a prophet in this church. Have you been acknowledged by that body? Have you been acknowledged by the senior pastor? So that you can exercise your gift in the context of the leadership team. Okay? So that's the office of the prophet. There's also a phenomenon known as the spirit of prophecy. And this spirit can fall upon any people or any congregation in any time that the Holy Spirit chooses. And when that happens, people who have never ever experienced something like this can prophesy. And that phenomenon we find in the Old Testament in the case of King Saul. Holy Spirit came and he started prophesying spontaneously. So that's what we call spirit of prophecy that may come upon us. In this context of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we're talking about primarily the gift of prophecy. The gift of prophecy. There's the office of prophet as well, but it has to do with the gift of prophecy. And the gift of prophecy has to do with something that people will receive from the Holy Spirit that causes them to basically speak forth the Word of God. Understanding the heart and the mind and the will of God. And it is speaking forth the Word of God by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is what most scholars believe. It's about speaking forth. It's not foretelling, but it's forthtelling. You don't have to be future-telling to be able to operate in prophecy. Okay? Future-telling may be there, but it may not be there. It may simply be the present moment Word of God that is given to you for you to speak forth to the congregation. Now with this background, I want, to, I want us to now go through this passage systematically from verse 2 onward. And we'll begin with verse 2 to verse 5. Let's read this out loud together. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. In the first part of verse 2, Paul says, For anyone who speaks in a tongue. In Greek, the term is glossa. And uh, it simply means some kind of language, whether it be known or unknown, it's some kind of language. It's a spiritual phenomenon of speaking in a language. But then in the second part of verse 2, he says, 
Anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. So the tongues that Apostle Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians is actually a prayer language to God. In that sense, it's different from what manifested in Acts chapter 2. That wasn't necessarily a prayer language. It was actually a prophetic word that, that was heard by all these diaspora Jews who have gathered together in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And they heard it. They witnessed it because the words were spoken to them. But this is a prayer language unto God. And then the latter part of verse 2, indeed no one understands them. So here, once again, it's different from Acts 2 manifestation. People who came from all different, different nations, they were able to understand in their own languages. But here, the language is not necessary to be known because it's supposed to be a secret language. So in the last part of verse 2, they utter mysteries by the Spirit. So it's a, basically a secret language with which you communicate to God. And that's why it doesn't really matter whether you understand it or not. If you have faith, you believe that you are communicating with God. And then in verse 4, 8, Paul says, Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves. But well, this is very interesting. This is the only gift that is used to primarily edify oneself. And those of you who are speaking in tongues, you know exactly what, what I mean. And I remember when I first began to manifest in, in these tongues, I realized how beneficial it is just by speaking in tongues, praying in tongues. It strengthened me. And I used to have this uh, horror of standing before people. And so I was very intimidated by, by the people who would greet me, and I'm supposed to preach to them. And to overcome that, I would used to pray in tongues for 20, 30 minutes as a, as a way of empowering myself. And then the fear would be dispelled. And I could stand before people and I can speak with a greater sense of confidence. There are many reasons and many ways by which I can be edified. Some people, when they speak in tongues like that, they feel inspired. They feel like some kind of creative ideas happen. And some of you will be taking exam this uh, coming week. And you know, you're trying to solve this with your mind, but wow, I wish that there's some kind of spiritual inspiration that will come and help me to be reminded of where that data or that information is. Well, by speaking in tongues while you're taking the exam or writing a thesis, inspiration can happen. That happens constantly. Sometimes when you feel like you're in depression, you're in bondage, you're emotionally low in your spirit, you speak in tongues to uplift yourself. See, all of these will help you to be edified. And in an indirect sense, if you're edified, you're in a position to maybe edify others. You know, when you're feeling unedified, then you bring everybody down. But when you're edified, you have this energy, you have this vitality, you got these resources which you can help to share with others. But Paul is saying, basically, tongues is limited by itself if you think of it as a way of self-edification. 
But in verse 3a, he says, but the one who prophesies, now he's talking about the phenomenon of prophecy. He's talking about anyone who operates with the gift of prophecy. He says in verse 3b, speaks to people. Okay. Tongues, you speak to God. Prophecy, you speak to people on behalf of God. God is giving you certain revelatory insights with which you can now minister to the people. And how do you minister? In verse 3c, for they are strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. So there's a positive effect of strengthening people, encouraging people, comforting people, fulfilling the needs of the people. So in verse 4, Paul says, anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies, edifies the church. And so this is the clincher. This is what he's trying to get at. Those who edifies others, those who edifies the church, those gifts which contribute to that, that would be considered primary. That would be considered great. So the purpose of prophecy is to edify or strengthen the church. Let me break down these three terms. Strengthening, encouragement, and comfort or consolation. The term strengthening in Greek is oikodome. And it means the process of building up. That's what it means, building up. That's the main purpose of prophecy, to build up. And the next two terms, it describes how prophecy builds up. First, it builds up by encouraging people. And the term here is paraklesis. Does that sound familiar? Because I've been repeating over and over that John's been talking about the Holy Spirit as paracletus, the one who comes alongside of us to help us, to strengthen us, comfort us, to defend us. And so, how do we edify or strengthen or build up others? By encouraging others. Please, be an encourager, not a discourager. Because people are in need of encouragement. Wherever, whatever your setting may be, always be positive and encouraging. And who knows? Maybe that prophetic spirit will come upon you and you may be able to prophesy. Because when you're encouraging people, that's in line with prophecy. God loves encouraging people. Another thing God loves doing is comforting people, consoling people. And here the term is paramethia. And the scholars say this means literally God whispering in our ear. You know, God exhorting us and being, be empowering us, energizing us. That's one thing. That's, that's something strong and firm about the way of God. But here God is whispering. Like a little kid who is hurt and injured and he's whispering, I'm here. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. And so these are two dynamics with which we operate when we prophesy to build up the church. Then in verse 5, he says, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. You see how he's prioritizing that? Tongues is good. 
Tongues will help you to edify yourself. But remember, I hope that you get edified so that you can ultimately edify others. And that's exactly what prophecy does. And that's why he says in verse 5b, the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. And in 5c, unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. Now what does it mean? Now he's bringing this dynamic of interpretation. So what he's saying here is that because if you're speaking in tongues, you, nobody can understand that. So they will not be edified. You don't understand it, but you can by faith assume that God is doing something inside of you to strengthen you. Okay? But it will not benefit other people because until you're able to communicate with them, it will not help them. So what you need is interpretation. So what Paul is saying is you have tongue, you have interpretation, that would be a sort of a dynamic equivalent to prophecy. Okay? But tongue by itself cannot be equivalent to prophecy. Tongue must be accompanied by interpretation in order to be equivalent to prophecy. And the term for prophecy is propheteia, by the way. Now let's continue on in verses 6 to 12. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the pipe or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, Try to excel in those that build up the church. In verse 6, Paul says, Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation, knowledge, prophecy, or word of instruction? Underline those terms. Revelation, knowledge, prophecy, word of instruction. And you might categorize these into two types. One has to do with supernatural way of communication. Through revelation. Here maybe knowledge is referring to the word of knowledge that he referred to earlier in chapter 12. And prophecy. These are supernatural revelatory insights. But the word of instruction has to do with something very natural and commonsensical. So whatever the means may be, whether it's supernatural or natural, the whole idea is being able to communicate so that people can understand. And therefore, Paul is emphasizing the necessity of intelligibility here. And then he gives two illustrations. In verse 7, even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, 
such as the pipe or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? You know, if people are just banging and just making noise and calling their music, how would I know that's music? It's totally unintelligible to me, musically speaking. But if we play tunes with certain melody lines, certain harmonic scale, then we can understand it right away because we're familiar with that. We're familiar with that, that kind of sound. The whole idea is to inspire people by a sense of familiarity. And then in verse 8, he gives another illustration. Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? He's talking about the military trumpet. And if you could be sounding, but that's just noise. But if you and you know, the military have different way of codifying through the tunes. And so the soldiers will know immediately when they hear the sound, whether they should advance, whether they should retreat, whether they should be in hiding or splitting into different divisions. They will know simply based upon the sound, but the sound has to be clear. In verses 9 to 12, Paul says, So it is with you unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue. How will anyone know what you are saying? Do you sense the frustration in the heart of Paul? He's saying if you don't speak in intelligible words and you're just blabbering in tongues, how can anybody understand you? You're just having a private session. Then go and do it in silence or do it in privacy. But why do you have to bring it into the open, in the public. It doesn't make any sense unless you're trying to show off your talents and your gifts. You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all kinds of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I'm a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me, so it is with you. The word for the foreigner here is barbaros. That's where we get the word barbarian. See, for those who are cultured in Greek culture, those who are civilized, they saw all those barbarians. You know, those, those European nations in the northern Europe, they used to be barbarians to those Europeans in the south who were cultivated by, through Roman Empire. And, and they were knowledgeable about Greek culture, but these were called barbarians because their words sounded like nonsense. They sound like bar 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 bar. That's why they are known as barbarians. Okay, and so if you're speaking in tongues, you sound kind of like gibberish. You sound like mumbo jumbo, nonsensical. So when people hear that, I say, what are these? Are they such ignorant folks? Such folks who are so primitive, and we're familiar with that kind of language because we heard that in our pagan worship before, before we were converted. So they were making associations of this way. And Paul didn't have any problem with speaking in tongues in, in gibberish like this. As long as it was in privacy. You do that. Do baby language. You know, Google Gaga, whatever, you know. And do it in the spirit. That's fine. That's good for your personal edification. But don't bring that out into the public and make a show of it unless 
that's intelligible. And because only if it's intelligible, you could finally communicate something to others and benefit others. So in verse 12b, he says, Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. Like prophecy, like knowledge, like wisdom, like discernment, like exhortation. Be intelligible. Just the other day, I was teaching this homiletics, that is a preaching class, to the international students, the graduate students at my school. And, uh, and some of these students wanted to make this first presentation. This, we're starting to now grade them. So they got all tense and nervous, and some of them wanted to present it in such a, 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 a grand way. It's a five-minute speech, but like, they did a grand thing, but I said, wow, are you trying to impress me? Because you did impress me. Like, I could barely understand what you're saying because it's so theologically heavy in five minutes of devotional. But your audience is not me. Your audience is common people, like a farming grandma. You think farming grandma will understand this? You think a, a typical housewife will understand this? You think a person working in a factory will understand this? Your job is so that you bring it down to the level where anybody can understand it. But don't give me this esoteric message. But you see, people who are trained in seminary, they learn all these theologies. They learn all these you know, original languages. right? And they want to present themselves to the people. And so they're making a show of it. And I, I was reminded of this text. Is it communicable? Is it intelligible? It is, is it understandable? Do people get it? Do people benefit from this? That should be the criteria that you should think about when you are presenting any kind of word. Let's move on from verses 13 to 20. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of an inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving since they do not know what you're saying? You're giving thanks well enough. But no one else is edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children in regard to evil. Be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. Paul says in verse 13, For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. Obviously, he's talking about this in the context of the congregational worship. In the public, not in the privacy. Because in the privacy, it's okay. Speaking in tongues. It's a secret language between you and God. God can understand. But when you bring it out to the public, they can't understand. And therefore, you must accompany that with some kind of interpretation. Because how can people say amen to that? How can they agree with you? And they be energized by it? 
by what you have to say. Isn't that what you want? You want them to bless you, affirm you, say amen to that? Well, then they have to understand what you're saying. Then he says in verse 14, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. You see, the important thing here is that when you're praying in tongues, it edifies your own spirit, but Paul is saying it does not necessarily edify your mind. Why? Because when you're praying in tongues, you're bypassing your mind. That actually is beneficial sometimes. You know, for example, if I'm clogged up in my mind with a lot of practical things, knowledgeable things, it's really difficult, you know, sometimes to bypass my mind. Sometimes I do want to bypass that, and I can do that by praying in tongues, and especially when I'm uh, interceding for others. But what Paul is saying is this in verse 15a, So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. So yes, pray in tongues, but actively engage your mind so that you can have understanding. Then you got the double blessing. Your spirit is edified, but your mind is also edified. And he's always emphasizing that your mind come into contact with your spirit and be in tune because your mind is important to discern constantly, to interpret, to understand. Then he add another, adds another dimension in verse 15b. He says, I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Obviously, there is this inspiration, a spiritual song, or sometimes singing in tongues, which can be useful. But even there, seek understanding. Seek understanding. And so Paul goes on uh, in this section that we should Constantly look for intelligibility, communicability, understandability, so that people will have a grasp as to what you're doing. And finally, in verse 20, he says, Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children in regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. He says, stop thinking like immature people. But be innocent and pure regarding evil of what? Self-promotion and elitistic mentality. You see, that's the thing that plagues all of us when we are gifted. When we feel like we're endowed with something, we tend to immediately think, wow, I'm better than others. I have something more than others. And we tend to self-promote. And that is the evil way of thinking. And Paul is saying, don't think about yourself and your self-ego. Think about others. How would it benefit and edify others? This is a pretty long sort of exposition on this text. So I'm going to really make it short. The rest of the um, text, verses 21 to 25. In the law it is written, With other tongues and through the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquires, or unbelievers come in, will they not say that they are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they will be convicted of sin 
and are brought under judgment by all. As the secrets of their hearts are laid bare, so they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Well, he starts off in this section by quoting from Isaiah 28. And basically, what he's saying is that the Israelites, they were not listening when he was presented to them in their native tongue. Why would they listen when he's presented in a foreign speech? And then he says in verse 22a, Tongues then are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Why? Because unbelievers, they are always impressed by spectacular things. So, I mean, they don't necessarily have to understand and go, Whoa, tongues, man, Whoa, look at that. And they'll rush to see what's happening. Okay? And so it can be kind of like a miraculous sign, as in Acts 2. And people can crowd around that. But tongues are not relevant as a sign to the believers. Why? Because believers need to be edified. We don't need these extra signs because we already have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. Okay? So it's not a sign for the believers. It's a sign for unbelievers. But in verse 22b, prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers but for believers. Yes, through prophecy, we are edified. And therefore, it becomes a sign for us. It becomes meaningful sign and symbol for us as congregation because we need to understand what God is saying to us. And then in verses 23 to 24, he's talking about how in this corporate worship, if we're just doing the gibberish, ecstatic type of worship with tongues manifested and, and there's this chaos, no one understands what's going on. They're just in ecstasy then he's saying that those people who are seekers, those people who are interested in, in knowing about our faith as Christians, they would think that we are all mad, that we are all crazy. But if it is prophecy, it is a way of convicting people and benefiting people so that as a result of the day, they might be convicted of their sins. They may be convicted of them some secret stuff that only God knows. And therefore, they will fall down, humble themselves, and give tribute to God, saying that God is really among you. I've seen this happening in an earlier congregation that I was, I was a pastor of, when people are really gifted in operating in spiritual gifts, and especially prophecy. Prophecy was one of the most powerful ways that people became convicted. People who would visit, people who are seekers, non-believers even, as prophetic words are spoken to them, they would be convicted. And then they would be drawn closer to God. I've seen that happening. Not only prophecy, miraculous healing power. That can be also a way to communicate to them of the power and the wonders of God. And I saw how people were drawn to the kingdom as a result of that. So today I just wanted to basically get the message across to you. The gifts are there, not for you and me, for our own individual possession sake. Not so that we can parade this and uh, make a show of it. The gifts are there to be used. Gifts are for the purpose of service. It's for others. It's not about me. So next time you think about the gifts and talents you have, just say, this is not about me. 
It's not about my personality, my way, and my treasury box. No, it's about others. So what gifts do you have? You have spiritual gifts. You got financial resources. You got some extra stuff that could be useful for others. Then God expects all of us to have those things brought out and see who are those who are in need and, and we distribute them. And that's how it should be in the body of Christ. That's how we should minister to the people in the world as well. The church should be, our storehouse should be filled with resources that we should hand out to the people of the world. And as a result of that, we can win them over into the kingdom of God. Amen. And only by doing this, we build up the church, we build up the kingdom, we expand the vision of the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. This, this is a very lengthy exposition and uh, I don't know if I've done a sufficient job trying to articulate this, but um, if you get a chance, I want you to deeply probe into this text and the next text, all in chapter 14, because this pretty much instructs us as to how to operate with spiritual gifts. And if we understand this, we shouldn't have too much problems that we've experienced in the charismatic circles. The chaos, the nonsenses, the factions, people getting jealous, envious, or people feeling inferior. All of this nonsense that's going on in the charismatic circles is because they don't understand that God has given us clear instruction as to how the gifts are to be operated. That's why we need to heed to the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapters. 12 to 14. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.